Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales. And I'm Ben Valsler. I'm going to kick off this week with a story about an analysis of the genome of the western clawed frog, that's Xenopus tropicalis. It was published in the journal Science this week and it marks the very first amphibian genome to be sequenced. Ufa Helston and colleagues at the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute in Walnut Creek report the finding that nearly 80% of genes associated with human diseases have their counterpart in the frog's genome, which is roughly the same number of coding genes, the frog genome, compared to our own. OK, so why this particular frog? Why the western clawed frog? And come to think of it, why any frog at all? Well, the western clawed frog itself is particularly interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, being the first amphibian to be sequenced, it helps us to understand the full range of vertebrate genes. We've already got the rat, the chicken, the zebrafish and the human genome. So we're sort of filling a gap in the vertebrate family tree. Also, the world's amphibians are under threat at the moment with populations in serious decline. This genome may help us to understand some of the problems that amphibians currently face and so give us clues as to how to prevent further losses. But the western clawed frog itself is more than just an example of its class, the class amphibia. It's of particular interest to us because it's biologically very similar to its cousin, the African clawed frog, or Xenopus levis. The African clawed frog has been vital to our understanding of embryology since it was used for pregnancy testing back in the 1940s. It has very large, very sturdy and very easily manipulated eggs. And so both it and its smaller relative, the western clawed frog, rapidly became some of the most popular organisms in embryology. OK, I'm convinced frogs are important, but what have we learned so far? Well, the frog's genome is remarkably similar to that of the chicken or to our own in its basic structure. For example, frog genes have very similar neighbours when compared with human genes around about 90% of the time. We last shared a common ancestor with frogs around 360 million years ago, but there are around 1,700 genes in the frog genome that are very similar to disease-related human genes. Frogs are known to produce their own antibiotic compounds, which helps to keep their moist skin free from infection. And we've already identified some of the genes responsible for that, which is a very nice step forward. And the researchers were very surprised to see a very large proportion of mobile genetic elements called transposons. These are elements that can move around the genome, and they account for about a third of the genome in frogs. They generally don't code for a protein like a normal gene would, but they're involved in controlling the way that the genes themselves work, including reorganising the genes in the chromosomes. It's going to take a bit more research to really work out what the implications of that are. And what's going to be the next step? What's next, really, with this? Well, it will create new ways to look at human development and disease, as well as act as a scaffolding for sequencing the larger African clawed frog genome. It will also help in the process of what's been called chromosomal archaeology, allowing us to piece together the story of vertebrate chromosomes and how they developed to give us the incredible variety of species that we see today. I love the sound of chromosomal archaeology. It sounds like a lot of fun. And it's a short hop from the frog world to the fish world.
And I have news this week of a group of colourful fish living in the Caribbean that have shed light on how species evolve in the oceans. Now, the seas are brimming with thousands of species, but just how they evolved remains something of a conundrum. Now, researchers from the University of East Anglia here in the UK and Simon Fraser University in Canada have uncovered evidence suggesting that fish can separate into new species without a geographical barrier. And that's something of a rarity in the fluid underwater world. With the help of hundreds of of volunteer divers spotting fish in reef surveys, which are the Reef Environmental Education Foundation. Um, the research team tracked the location of hamlet fish from the genus Hyplectrus um, that live all across the Caribbean. OK, just so I've got an idea of, of what we're talking about here, what do hamlet fish actually look like? Um, they're very cute. Um, let me uh, assure you of that. They're little fish, about 15 centimetres or six inches long, um, and they come in a variety of different colours. They tend to sit around on reefs. They're not very active. They're not very fast swimming fish. They sort of hang there in the water. You get yellow ones, blue ones and black ones. Um, one of my favourites is called the indigo hamlet. I totally fell in love with this fish the first time I dived in the Caribbean. It looks like it's been tie-dyed. It's a deep indigo colour with these white bands um, wrapped around it. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful little fish. Um, but previously it was thought that marine species might have evolved um, during times when the sea level was lower, which split populations into separate water bodies. And then these subdivided populations would then go on um, to give rise to new species. But this new study, published in the journal Global Ecology and Biogeography, revealed that these hamlet fish tend to live in a series of clusters or hotspots. Now, if the species evolved in isolation, we might expect to see several hotspots for different species. They're almost like the evolutionary cauldrons of the past, you might imagine. But instead, what they found was the species live um, in more than one hotspot and that individual species um, have hotspots spots that tend to overlap. Now that does suggest that hamlets didn't evolve separately, but in the same areas. Okay, so if it's not this sort of island effect where they're separated from one another, what do we think it is that's actually causing them to become separate species? Well, that is the next big question that does need answering. And we can look towards factors like competition for food and habitat, which probably are more important at separating um, a population and then keeping it isolated so that there's no interbreeding and blurring of those species boundaries. And that's the sort of thing that researchers will now be um, looking at. But I think the really interesting thing about this study, part is is the really good scientific use of data collected by amateur scuba divers um, and that the fact that these that their findings um, have provided at least part of the solution to that riddle of how some species um, evolved in the oceans and continue to do so today. Well, thank you very much, Helen. It's nice to know that amateurs are providing excellent value for science as well. This is a lovely story that I found this week about how you can take a technique that's developed for one thing and use it for something else to get fantastic results. A technique developed to take three-dimensional real-time images of the retina has also turned out to be very useful for detecting evidence of fraud in paintings, according to research published in the journal Accounts of Chemical Research this month. Piotr Tagowski and colleagues at Nicholas Copernicus University in Torun in Poland realised that the technique of optical coherence tomography, or OCT from here on in, should be able to image the layers of a painting, just like it does bio layers of biological tissue in the retina. OK, so how does this work? 
Well, OCT can sort of be thought of as the light version of ultrasound. I don't mean that ultrasound is heavy, but I mean instead of using sound, it uses light. A beam of light, usually at near-infrared wavelengths, is sent into a tissue and the reflected light is collected. Much of the light gets scattered rather than being reflected straight back, and that doesn't produce an image. But OCT uses the scattered light to work out what the image would be very much like an ultrasound. It can produce a very high-resolution, three-dimensional, real-time image, but it doesn't actually penetrate very deeply into the tissue. And, uh, and where does artwork come into all this? Well, this is the thing. Paintings are usually built up in layers when done traditionally anyway. The very back of the painting will be the canvas itself. But an artist will usually apply a layer of adhesive to that to make sure that future layers stick properly. You then may get a few primer layers to make sure it's smooth. Then you get an outline of the picture that you intend to do. Various layers of coloured paints, various washes, various sort of semi-transparent glazes. And then usually a protective varnish over the top of everything. Now, clearly each layer is going to be incredibly thin, but this is where the high resolution of OCT comes into its own. Now, it's very important for conservation purposes to understand the stratigraphy of a painting. That's this layered effect. And the most common way to do it is actually to cut a sample of the painting away, embed it in resin and look at it under a microscope. OCT allows you to image all of the layers without even touching the painting, let alone cutting a bit away, down to the micrometer level. That sounds great for conservation, but um, is this going to help us with fraud as well to find out which ones are fake? Well, it looks like it is, yes. By imaging all of the layers on a painting, you can easily see where something has been painted over or added in at a later date. An example given in the paper is a painting of St. Leonard, a Franciscan monk, that was painted in 1797. Now, the painting does say St. Leonard on it in one corner, but here's the thing, he wasn't made a saint until 1867. So either the inscription of St. Leonard or the date of 1797 must be wrong. Now, using OCT, they could show that the layer containing the date was actually part of the deep structure of the painting, while the inscription St. Leonard lies on top of the thick coat of varnish that covers the original black background. Now, they could also identify an earlier inscription which had actually been painted over when Leonard became St. Leonard. The same technique could, of course, be used to spot less well-meaning alterations, because obviously all they wanted to do was commemorate the fact that he'd become a saint. Had they put somebody else's signature on it, that would have been a very different issue altogether. Fascinating stuff. And uh, from conservation of paintings, I'm going to hop to conservation of biodiversity and news that the world is still losing biodiversity at an alarming rate, despite world leaders promising in 2002 to cut the rate of loss by 2010. That's right, that's this year. Now, it's a stark warning um, that's been published in the journal Science this week by a huge team of international researchers. And together, they've pulled data in, from the past four decades on 31 indicators, which show us the state and the pressures on biodiversity. And the sad news is that they found no signs of improvement, but lots of signs of continued breakdown of species, populations and ecosystems, as well as these unrelenting impacts from human activities. And it's all, show, all this means is that the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD, which will meet later this year, is going to fall a long way short of its intended targets. Now, there is some good news, though, um, with increases in some um, some of these factors, like increased numbers of protected areas, um, lots more commitment to tackling things like invasive species. Um, so there are, and there is also quite a lot of evidence that when there is political will and the necessary money, biodiversity loss can be reduced or reversed. Now, unfortunately, all too often, 
in the news on this show, we're reporting on something being endangered or the loss of a species. So sh- this shouldn't be a surprise to us, surely? No, that's right. Um, we really weren't actually expecting anything ex- other than a fairly gloomy picture being painted. But I think the reason we need studies like this is really that we're bringing a lot of information together, squeezing out a very short, sharp message, which is there's no hiding from it. We are still losing biodiversity. We cannot ignore this anymore. Some people argue that we lose a lot of important detail in these sort of large-scale studies, but it's the sort of thing that will capture international attention, in particular politicians and decision-makers. So that's really what this sort of paper is about. And hopefully it will really stimulate world leaders into really getting tough on new plans for reversing these downward spirals of global biodiversity and really to help make sure that next time we stick to our promises. Well, it's certainly something to think about, isn't it? Especially at the moment, of course, thinking about policy. Now, also in the news this week, The Lancet has published a full clinical assessment of the benefits to looking at your genome to help personalise your medicine. Dr Ewan Ashley from Stanford University School of Medicine joins us now on the line. Hi, Ewan. Thanks for joining us. Haven't we been finding genes related to disease for years? What's actually new here? Well, thanks very much for having me on the show. Uh, I think this is the first time that anyone has really had a whole genome available for an individual. And the the, the task we set ourselves was, what if a a patient comes into a doctor's office with his or her whole genome? What would the physician be able to do? So we tried to integrate all the associations with genes and disease that have ever been described in a way that we could apply to this one person's genome. And is it just the disease that we can look at, or can we also tell a bit about how they might respond to certain drugs? Yeah, this this topic of of so-called pharmacogenomics, using the genome to help try to choose a better drug and and personalize medicine for the individual. Uh, But it it can do other things other than just choose the best drug. It can do that on the basis of the best effect for the drug, but also hopefully helping avoid side effects. And in the particular patient in our paper, uh, he fell just short on his regular criteria for a, a recommendation of a cholesterol-lowering medication. But when we looked into his genome, we found increased genetic risk for coronary artery disease. So we moved ourselves to, towards recommending that. So we looked in his genome to see would he respond well to one of those cholesterol-lowering medicines, and we found variants in his genome that would suggest he would. And more than that, we actually found variants that would suggest he had a low risk of side effects. And I think this is really what personalized medicine of the future will, will begin to look like. We've had a sequence of the human genome for a little while now. Why only now are we starting to look at it from this personalised medicine perspective? Well, I think that the informatics uh, challenge has been very significant. And, of course, all the time this information is changing and we're gathering together information about new variants. This was only the fifth human genome that has ever uh, been sequenced. And really, it's only a few years ago that cost millions of dollars in fact, in 2001, when the first draft human genome sequence came out, it was, that project was $3 billion, um, although maybe three or 400 million were the sequencing costs. But this particular genome we looked at cost only $50,000 to sequence. And even since we did that uh, last year, the cost has fallen in half, and when we believe it will continue to fall so that in the next few years it's really literally a few hundred dollars. So that sounds very promising. I'm glad to see it's getting a lot cheaper. But how do you prepare somebody for this? You're telling them an awful lot of stuff that they won't have known about themselves, about their risk for diseases. Does somebody need counselling in order to actually take all this in? Absolutely. And this is something that we, t- we took very seriously. We did provide counselling to this particular patient. I think it's a challenge really uh, in, in a quantitative way. It, it's, 
we've always given genetic counselling to patients when we do genetic testing, but this is really on a whole different scale. They could potentially find out about hundreds or even thousands of disease risks, and we need to make sure that patients and physicians are, are going ahead in a way uh, that their eyes are open and that they understand what they might find out. This is, at the end of the day, not a cholesterol test where you might find out four or five things. You, you're, you're dealing with six billion data points and really maybe two and a half million variations uh, from a reference genome. And so there's going to be a lot of information and it's going to be a lot to take in and I think we have to, to take that part of it very seriously. So what are the challenges for you now? What's the next step? Well, the, in the original paper with this genome, there were three authors and they, they sequenced the genome for, for $50,000 in five days. Uh, and if you, in the paper that just came out in The Lancet this week, there were 30 authors and it took us months and months and many, many hours of, of manual labor to comb through this genome. And I think what we'd like to be able to do is, is automate that. And many of the algorithms that we have written are, are easily and readily automated and we've started to work on that for the next genomes that are coming forward. So the sequencing is getting very quick, but it's this analysis that we've really got to speed up. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Ewan. That was Dr Ewan Ashley from Stanford University on what could be the future of personalised medicine. If you'd like to read any more about our news stories, you can find them all at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.